and welcome to The Great Indoors. The podcast which reveals everything you ever needed to know about interiors and explains how to make it all really work for you in your home. I'm Kate Watson-Smythe. And I'm Sophie Robinson. Now, if there's one room in our home that demands the most of our design superpowers, it's the kitchen. Our sponsor, Neptune, offers a complete kitchen design service where you can tell them your wish list and design aspirations and they will turn it into your dream kitchen. They even come over and do all the measuring up. I mean, I know I'm married to a builder, but if someone else is going to do all the measuring and spatial planning, that definitely takes the pressure off. And I particularly love their attention to detail. For example, the internal shelf supports are beautifully shaped and painted to match the interior of the cupboard. And the clever space-saving swing-out shelves and bifold doors as well, so you can have as much storage as possible. All very clever and practical. Although I have to say, I'm only thinking about what colour to go for. <laughs> of course you are. My problem is, I just keep changing my mind. My kitchen's been three different colours in ten years. Well, the thing about a Neptune kitchen is while the style is rather classic, timeless and of course built to last, it's about to get easy to change the colour as they plan to offer a repainting service soon. I mean, imagine the endless possibilities. Don't tempt me. They have that particularly good shade of yellow I've been dreaming about. You can see that and all their kitchen designs at Neptune.com. So coming up today, we'll be turning our attention to the humble shed. In much need of a makeover, now it's not so humble and being pressed into surface as a summer house, garden office, kids' playroom, you name it. And we also have an interview with designer Alex Dawley, fresh from the launch of her very exciting project, United in Design. And in our style surgery, we'll ponder awkward angles and difficult corners. <laughs> and oddly shaped rooms. Anyway, sheds. Sophie, when we talked to your garden designer, Sarah Mitchell, in our last episode, who was so fascinating, I have to say, she didn't mention your shed plans. Have you got um, grand designs going on? Of course we've got grand designs. Well, we've already got the tree house, haven't we? Is Which... that not the garden shed? No, no, we're not oh, going to no, be no. keeping any garden no, tools no, in no. that. No, no, no. I mean, do you want to know about our garden shed where we're going to keep our lawnmower? Are we, are you, have you got bigger, bigger plans? Are we talking about the fact that our sheds... Are, I mean, because we're not talking about sheds, are we, Kate? Mm. We're talking about... Kind of like summer houses, garden rooms, yeah. garden offices. And also, I mean, some people call them man caves, don't they? And I think in response to that, a couple of years ago, there was a whole thing going on about she sheds, which I didn't <laughs> yes. realise what that was for ages. I just thought it was some kind of spelling mistake. Um, and then I realised <laughs> that it was, it's if a man's got a man cave, she's got a she shed. I mean, I kind of hate all that, but we are talking about a structure in the garden. Well, no, I think it's a. I think it's a good point. So you know, Arthur's got his treehouse, which I'll be honest about. I think Tom's going to quickly hoover up as his man cave, <laughs> and I'm without my she shed. So yeah, I've got to get it on the list. I think especially actually, it's interesting because I do work from home and I have a lovely office, and now it's newly decorated, and I'm very. Are grateful you bored? For it. Is this a run up to? I'm <laughs> bored with my office. Is it? I don't. No, it's not. You're so 
make me sound such a brat. But mm. what it is, though, yeah. is it is. I think with more of us working from home, we know that this is a trend, and more people are either going part time working from home or working home full time. It's actually quite nice to get out of the house and have a separate space to go to. And um, I was actually chatting to my friend Mark, Mark Bowes, who is a designer, and one element of his business is designing garden rooms I suppose is the catch-all for various clients and I asked him what are people looking to get from their garden spaces and he said well number one it is as a workspace that tends to be the main drive but they also want them to be versatile so for example you might work in them in the day but then you want to switch over to a bit of a teenager's hangout in the evening or weekends they might be somewhere where you watch sports matches they could be a music studio somewhere to go and do a bit of yoga so actually we have a quite a lot of demands of these extra rooms but it's basically isn't it it's I mean, when you're having that many purposes assigned to it, you are effectively building an extension. It's just not attached to your house. But the brilliant thing is, is you don't need planning permission for them. They can be quite straightforward. As long as you don't go beyond 2.5 metres, which is the height of the eaves, you can build a shed without going through all the hassle of planning, although it is a good idea to make sure they comply with building regulations. I think you should just check because I looked into that and there are some issues about how far away you are from your boundary walls or your neighbour's walls. Obviously not an issue for you. So basically, rather than us spending 20 minutes discussing planning, I am just going to say to you lovely listeners, if you're in the UK, go to planningportal.co.uk If you're in other parts of the world, find your local place. The rules will be different. And that will tell you what you need to know in terms of height and size and all the sort of the nitty details while we just, you know, talk about paint. (laughs) But the beauty is it isn't that complicated. Don't be put... I mean, I definitely don't want to go looking down any portal. I think as long as you're not... (laughs) As long as you're not sleeping in it, it's a metre away from your boundary wall and you don't go above 2.5 metres, you should be good to go. But then having said that, don't use this podcast in any legal proceedings. (laughs) (laughs) Moving swiftly on. (laughs) My my concern, so we have had actually some electric cables run down from the house to the bottom of the garden in the event of one day having some... Oh, a bit of future-proofing. A bit of future-proofing. So at the moment, we've just got some festoon lights wound around a tree halfway down the garden, and that's as far as we've got. So you do need to think about electricity. My problem is, and, you know, well, I don't... You haven't got a garden office, so you won't know, but maybe listeners can tell us. I'm worried that on a really rainy day in November, I'll get down to the bottom of the garden and I'll install myself... And then I'll need a wee and I'll have to come schlepping back up through the muddy garden and into the house. And then I'm worried that I won't go back out again. Is that my discipline issue? You need a composting toilet, Kate. Hold on one second. What is it? Oh, I've got a bird inside my house and it's banging on the window. Can can I just go and sort that out? Okay. Right. Have you got rid of it already? It's it's like all creatures great and small here. (laughs) Luckily. (laughs) (laughs) It's the wrong music, isn't it? That was Dallas. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, anyway, I was just really worried about it pooing all over my brand new chintz sofa. That's what I was most stressed about. But have you got it out? Yes, it's gone. What happens when you get a bird in your garden office shed, she shed, man cave room? Well, there you are. So where were we? (laughs) We were... (laughs) 
Well, I tell you what, I was talking about worrying about needing a wee and not going back out to my garden office, but I suppose that's just my laziness. Yeah, no, I, I think also I would worry about not being able to make copious amounts of cups of hot tea. So I kind of need running water as well. And this is where all the costs start building up. So I asked Mark, you know, what are you looking at sort of ballpark budget for a room that isn't a shed? So let's be honest first up you can't just buy a garden shed from diy.com or whatever because it's not going to be warm enough it's not going to be secure enough for you to have any valuable equipment in so you are looking for something that has quite a bit of integrity in terms of build insulation a good subfloor as we've already said electrics at the bare minimum but you might want to think about water so you can have a kettle in there and you know Madam might need an ensuite by the sounds of things. <laughs> I think that's probably not possible, is it? But uh, so he said you're looking at, he thinks about £20,000 upwards, which makes it quite a serious investment, doesn't it? And then he says, obviously, you add on to that. So, for example, if you're wanting big windows or skylights, bifold doors, it's actually the windows that can really push the budget up. But I was having a look just sort of wandering around the corridors of the internet as you do. And your first point's absolutely right about just buying a shed. It just isn't strong enough to last for several years. When you go up to the next level, sort of anywhere between, you know, from five to 30 grand, I think you can then spend. But that's still probably cheaper than extending your house, isn't it? So, into, I mean, not 30 grand necessarily, but if you come in at, at, at that 20 grand figure... That's probably, depending on where you are, cheaper than extending your house. So Yeah, it possibly is. And, and there is that element as well of it being away from yeah. the house being quite a nice thing. You know, if it is a teenager's hangout or if it is your office, it is quite nice to be away from everybody else. Or if it's somewhere where you're going to practice your drumming. Oh, or God, yes. <laughs> I have to say I'm quite keen on the idea of one for teenagers, you know, so that they feel they could play music or, you know, drink too much beer or whatever. Um, a friend of mine bought one, and this might be a tip, clearly not for this year, but he went to Chelsea. Is it Chelsea Flower Show? I think it's properly called, isn't it? But they have everything there. It's not just flowers. And he got chatting to a one of these kind of garden office shed companies, and they built one for Chelsea, and they sold it to him uh, for sort of almost nothing because it was built for display. So, you know, there might be ways... If you want to save some money, go and look at places like that at the flower shows or the trade shows and see if you can pick up a bargain. Yeah, there are some ways. So obviously, you know, Mark builds bespoke to your design. So you can have, you know, cedar shingles, batten and board. You can have rough sawn. You can have marine ply, plywood interiors, plastered. I mean, you really are designing it from scratch, which is lovely. Um, on the other end of the scale, you could look at buying some kind of structure, be it a shepherd's hut or a, some kind of shed or reclaimed outbuilding and insulating it yourself. I mean, in a way, you know, the treehouse that Tom, my husband's built, is just made out of reclaimed wood and bits of reclaimed insulation boards off the back of building sites. So again, you could scour the free cycle ads and eBay and maybe, you know, skip and reclamation yards and get hold of old bits of wood and timber and insulation and build your own. All I'm saying is it doesn't happen in a hurry as anyone who's been following <laughs> our treehouse <laughs> progress over the years um, is it, it takes quite a long time, whereas these flat pack sheds or sit panel kits is another good thing to look into. They can fly up literally within days. And I think it's quite, you know, that idea that, as you say, you could then build in your own desk to suit. So you can 
you can create something that is really officey, but I think in terms of decor, it's really nice to sort of keep that link to the fact that it is a garden shed. So maybe have fun with some, you know, if your walls are, are not just shed-like, have some wallpaper that is a bit jungle or a bit tropical or something so that you can, you know, make it feel like your dream office space because it is in the middle of the garden. I had a client and she had at the bottom of her garden of this house she'd just moved into a big sort of garden shed, which was basically glass doors at the front, big sliding glass doors. And she didn't actually know what she was going to do with it. But the previous owners had put this sort of fairly... I'm going to say aggressive wallpaper on the back wall. And you could see it from the house all the time. And, and she, both she and I found it really stressful. So we said that even if she didn't know what to do with it, just maybe be aware that you can see it from the house. And she was going to wallpaper the back in sort of tropical leaves and, you know, flowers, because you could almost see it as soon as you came in the front door. So bear that view in mind and have something that kind of sits nicely in its garden environment, which you might not do in a traditional office space. You might feel you've got to be a bit more sensible with the decor, but you can really yeah, have fun. Oh, no, no, you should never feel like you need to be sensible with the decor. Well, some people that? do. No, they, well, I know you don't, <laughs> but you don't. And now you're saying you're bored of your office. No, no, I'm not bored. I'm not bored <laughs> of it. I just quite like to get away from everybody hassling me every five minutes. That's why I just want to be on my own. But you'll be there in your little shed at yes, the bottom of the heaven. garden and you'll look up heaven. and there'll be all these little faces oh, knocking on the They'll window. They'll come and find me, won't they? <laughs> they will. Well, actually, They'll that's good. another good tip. You know, uh, again, following on from what Sarah said on the last podcast, I think your garden office shouldn't be too far from the house. Uh, and again, it depends on how big your garden is. But think about the fact that you are going to want to make lunch, cups of tea, trips to the loo. So you don't want it to be miles away. Another nice tip actually that Mark mentioned was the um, idea of staining your garden office black. He says it really helps it disappear because you don't want your garden office to suddenly be this like monolith at the end of the garden and of just orange. Sort of t- oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that takes over. He says so actually a black colorway looks fantastic against the greenery and really kind of helps the garden office recede back into the distance. I think, you know, black is great. And a shed exactly at the bottom of the garden, surrounded by greenery. So I'm going for white rambling roses all over my black office Got shed. Got some of those grey poppies. And inside... Your grey poppies. Oh, the grey poppies. Yes, yeah, yes, all yeah. monochrome. And then inside, some lovely vintage furniture. Oh, a nice vintage leather chair yeah. to sink into when is I'm this not like, sitting is this at like, my little oh, desk. Is this your kind of like Beatrix Potter writer's retreat? Is that what you're channeling? Something like that. Yeah, but talking okay. of writer's retreats, George Bernard Shaw, oh, you've just reminded me of this, George Bernard Shaw built a kind of summer house at the bottom of his garden and it revolved so that it caught the sun all the time. Yeah, you can get I, those. There, you can yeah. buy those. That's so brilliant, isn't it? That's the one, isn't it? And you know, he was a good writer. Let it be said. So, well, he, clearly it works. Yeah, revolving right for a garden writer's studio. <laughs> it's a must have. <laughs> so, but yes. So the point would be, I think you can obviously. How long is a piece of string? You can spend all the money in the world, but you can get something usable and basic for what, between kind of five and 15, Well, perhaps? Tom reckons we've spent around 5,000 on the treehouse, but considering yeah, but the he's majority... but he's built it, so there's no labour. Well, that's it, and the yeah. majority of the materials were reclaimed, and he's built it. Uh, it just gives you and some you insight got, that this yeah. is... It's a, it's a big undertaking. You're not going to pop one up for a couple of grand. But, as you say, 
or as I say, in fact, I said this, it's cheaper than building a new room and you could potentially have multi-purpose. So you could have working in the day and man cave in the evening or teenage den in the evening. Yeah, so, that's the key. Keep it versatile. So it's got yeah. multi-uses for everybody in the family. Yeah, <laughs> although, absolutely. Although not mine. Mine's just for me, by the way. That's disclaimer. <laughs> I'm the only one with a key in my fantasy she shed. I'm obviously not going to get any time soon, but it'd be nice. Cut to episode three and Sophie reveals <laughs> her new she shed. <laughs> so if you have fabulous shed hacks, we want to know them. Come and tell us your tips and tricks and ideas. Come and find us on Instagram where I'm mad about the house and she's Sophie Robinson Interiors. Or, of course, do join in the conversation on the Great Indoors Facebook group. Now, last series, we did a special diversity in design edition, which brilliantly was our most downloaded episode ever. And in that, we promised to keep talking about the issue and all the interesting ideas and initiatives popping up to address it. Kate, one of them was yours. How is your Design for Diversity campaign going? Can you give us an update? We've had, at the time of recording, over 120 sign-ups from big brands such as Mylands and Sanderson, Zoffany, and also to sole traders and stylists. So people who are saying that they're now looking towards more black-owned businesses for props to style magazine shoots. And we also... One of the great ideas that's come out of it is by a wallpaper and textile company called Black Pop, and they are funding a bursary at their local university, and they found a black textile student in her third year who, completely by coincidence, her thesis, which she started writing, is about the lack of diversity in interior design. So they are funding her through the rest of the year, and they're going to help her create either a wallpaper or a fabric, which they will then print and put into production and hope to launch next year. So that's just one of, you know, a few initiatives that have come bubbling out. So it's very exciting. Yeah, that is brilliant. So someone who has been looking at the issue from a different angle is designer Alexandria Dawley. And she and Sophie Ashby of Studio Ashby have just launched this United in Design, which is a charity to address the lack of diversity within the interior design industry. I wanted to find out more about how it works, but also about Alex's own career and how her experiences informed the aims of the charity. Hi, Alex. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about United in Design. I understand your background. You're a trained interior designer. Mm -hmm. What is your personal experience? Did you face any issues coming into this? I'm believing from your accent you might have grown up in Wales. Yes, I am <laughs> Welsh, um, although I've been in London for the last sort of 16, 17 years since I've met my husband. Um, but no, I trained in KLC, uh, which is a design school in Chelsea Harbour. And I loved my course. And yes, I was the only black person on the course at the time. But, you know, everybody was lovely and friendly and it was a very positive experience. Um, I personally chose not to go and work in a design studio, um, which I think having spoken to lots of people, that's where 
they've sort of fallen down and that's where it, it, it became problematic to them when they sort of had finished studying and then wanted to get a placement in a design studio. And was that a problem because there aren't many places or you're referring to that being a problem in terms of diversity and and studios being welcoming? Yeah, I think lots of people had said to me that they had sort of sent their portfolios over to the design studio, um, had been invited to interview. And then there was maybe a conversation about, oh, you know, we're really looking for somebody who is the face of, of the brand. And then they never heard anything back or turning up for interviews and then people sort of look of shock and surprise um, that a brown face was sort of looking back at them, so to speak. And then they they just weren't ever called back for second interviews and they just weren't given the job. Mm. And, you know, some people had said that they'd applied, had an interview, were then told, actually, we're not hiring and then asked a, a white friend to call up. And then the white friend was told, oh, yes, we've definitely got a space still available. I mean, it seems so shocking, doesn't it, that this is still happening. But we absolutely heard these stories again and again when we did a podcast in the last series where we spoke to lots of people within the industry from stylists and designers to, you know, a whole range of journalists. So it clearly is an ongoing issue within this sector, I'm sure it is within other sectors as well. Yeah. What was the moment? I mean, I think the whole world was affected by George Floyd and starting to think about things they could do and how they could make a difference. But, you know, did you just sort of wake up at three o'clock one morning and go, this is it? How did you come to this plan of United in Design? I just feel that I'd had so many conversations and I, I was on Instagram and I was looking at everybody's posts and to me, it genuinely, I just sort of said to my husband, but we could do this. It's actually not that difficult, you know, and this is what it needs because I've been back as a tutor as well um, to KLC. And I knew that, you know, there was an issue of diversity because I would see in the classrooms, yeah. you know, underrepresented. So I reached out to lots of people to find out their sort of um, experiences of trying to get into the interior design industry if they were from sort of ethnic minority backgrounds. And we realised there was this real sort of gap for people to be able to access um, interior design for one reason or another. So United in Design was born and it is a programme of outreach initiatives, um, including schools outreach and mentoring uh, to really create a pathway for people to follow to get into the interior design industry. I understand because obviously we've spoken off air that your programme is sort of loosely based around a, a royal ballet programme that your daughter's involved in. Is that right? Yeah. So so I was just listening to gathering all of these sort of experiences and stories. And then I just thought, let me have a look at my own personal experience. And my daughter's 12 and she um, has danced for many years and she does ballet predominantly. And um Chance to Dance is an outreach programme set up by the Royal Ballet School over 30 years ago because they realised that ballet was, you know, elitist and, yeah. and very uh, sort of white in terms of the people that uh, participated. There weren't very many ethnically diverse dancers. Um, and so they go into inner London schools and offer ballet 
to students and any student showing sort of an aptitude or love of dance is then asked to participate and often given the chance to join the Chance to Dance programme. And that's what my daughter did. She was seven at the time. And um, she's now going into her fourth year of training with the Royal Ballet School. Amazing. And so I knew that outreach worked yeah. and would work in order to sort of bring interior design to the consciousness of people that maybe wouldn't have seen it as an option for them. And I also had a mentor when I left KLC. So my tutor at KLC was uh, Evie Dunbav in hands and we just hit it off um, as friends right from the, the get-go really. And when I left, she just said, do you know what, Alex, you know, we really get on, but it's going to be tough setting out on your own. So do you want yeah. to just come to my studio a couple of times a week I can show you the ropes you can come to site with me and that's what I did and we continue to I, you know she she's always at the end of the phone even now um, for me to call her for advice and we we work together on projects and so that was invaluable. So is United Design will one of the elements perhaps be giving a, a more sort of rounded approach to students or, or filling them in on what else is needed apart from just knowing, you know, how to put a colour palette together, the sort of practical running a business side. I think that is something we will certainly touch on later down the line. I think the resource hub at the moment, we are wanting to give people quite a lot of in-depth information um, in terms of how to put a CV together, how to put a portfolio together. So it's more sort of focusing on the interior design industry. How can you access it? How can you get into it? Where can you study? All of those things. The mentoring side of United in Design will give people the same information that I got from Evie on a more ad hoc basis, I suppose. Because the thing is about interior design is that there's no one way to do it. Everybody prices things in a different way. They have different structures, different paperwork. And so Evie very much taught me how she has done it for the last sort of 15 years. But her model was very simple, and that is the one that I continue to follow today. There's just sort of one other thing I'd like to sort of look at with you, and that we've seen over the last few weeks, you know, lots of statistics about how companies that employ a more diverse workforce do better. They do better financially, they're more representative, they're more inclusive, the whole thing is better. In terms of interior design, being or having been and hopefully about to change a very sort of white middle class not diverse industry have we ended up with a sort of very homogenous interior design look what what can we get if we bring in you know more diverse backgrounds and tastes and styles i mean it sounds like it could be really exciting I think it will be really exciting. I mean, for instance, I can reference, um, say, Kit Kemp. I go to her hotels and she champions makers and suppliers and designers from diverse backgrounds. And if you actually go into any of her hotels or read her books, it's amazing the cultural uh, sort of diversity, the different textures, colours, techniques that have come in. 
you know, seeing people's cultural backgrounds, their heritage come through in um, fabric design, the colours and the vibrancy of it all um, is just amazing. And I think it would just create this whole melting pot then of different sort of takes on design. And also you're opening up the industry to a whole new community. It sounds to me what you're doing is sort of hugely daunting, but also hugely exciting. Or are you sort of going, oh my goodness, what have we started? I mean, it sounds like you've covered everything. Yeah, there's been tears uh, from Sophie and I, uh, where we've sort of gone, oh my God, we've bitten off so much. And it's that weight of responsibility, I think, is where it kind of came from, because I do feel very responsible now to make this work. I have promised my goddaughter that, you know, doors will now be opened to her on the back of this and because that is essentially what this is all about. And I suppose we've started this now and we are committed to it, 100% committed to it. But yet it is daunting and it's scary. And this is certainly a world in which you know, I'm entering into, you know, I, I work in my little corner of South London, Surrey, happily plodding along. And suddenly I'm thrown into the big world, into this world of sort of luxury interior design and talking to, you know, lots of people that I would never have probably paths wouldn't have crossed beforehand. And what is your goddaughter's name? Her name is Malaika. So what we're saying, Alex, is in a few years' time, we need to be looking out for Studio Malaika. Indeed. I mean, she's just, <laughs> she's so enthusiastic and she was meant to be coming for work experience with me and then coronavirus happened and so she hasn't been able to come across. But yeah, she would love to enter into this um, industry and, and I hope now her journey will be a positive one. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. That is all such brilliant work and fascinating stuff. And I find in particular the element of mentorship really, really inspiring. I mean, Kate, as you acknowledged in the interview, and I'll acknowledge again, interior design industry has been so white, so middle class for so long. I think Instagram I've seen has really helped democratise the industry. It's allowed people to showcase their talent and their homes wherever they are in the country. And whatever their socioeconomic backgrounds, you know, it's not just a place for posh people to show off their posh houses. So that's been an initial first step, but there's clearly so much more to do. And actually, I was recently signposted to a great initiative called the Creative Mentor Network. It came in one of the forums that I share with a lot of people in the styling fraternity. Kate McPhee flagged this one up for me, who's a work colleague of mine. And it's a charity that invites mentors to join up uh, for training. Now, you pay a course fee, but they train you to understand how the creative world can work more inclusively with people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. So a little bit more of a wider reach to address the wider problem of diversity within our industry. So this has been set up by the founder, Isabel Farkey, who's really, really passionate about making the creative world of work more inclusive. So if you're somebody who feels that you could be a mentor, do not hesitate to either get in touch with the Creative Mentor Network. We'll put the links, of course, on our show notes or indeed with Sophie and Alex under United in Design. There's also another initiative which has been set up, hasn't it, by Laura Jane Clark, who, of course, we had on the show. Yeah, the 
TV architect from Your Home Made Perfect, amongst other great things. That's right. And it's called Siren Sister. And that's a diverse and female-led network of architects and interior designers and stylists and photographers. So that's another great place maybe to have a look at and see if you want to get involved. Well, again, you know, Laura saw, you know, within her own industry of architecture, a real lack of diversity, not just through race, but gender as well. And for somebody who has a profile in the media industry, she's just really keen to help give a platform to people uh, from, again, females or people of colour or people from all different socioeconomic backgrounds to give them a platform to access TV and media platforms. So I think to summarise it, there are things that are beginning to happen. Changes are beginning to be made. Can I hear Lucy? Yes, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone's wondering what that gremlin is, Lucy, what are you doing? She's just agreeing, Kate. Oh, she's agreeing she's with just you. Like, she was like, she was, she was just going, yes, yes, yes. Yes, Lucy, you and I feel that there is actually... There is a willingness to change and that ideas are beginning to emerge with sort of concrete steps that can be taken and people sort of getting together to share ideas. And, you know, the more we all feel able to talk about it, the more hopefully that change will start to happen. So great to hear from Alex and great to hear about all these other initiatives that are coming up. And now for our regular listeners' style surgery. And we have the following design dilemma from Carrie-Ann from Bristol. She says, We have an odd-shaped bedroom. We ripped out the fitted wardrobes as they were awful, but we now have odd pieces. And the room is totally uninspiring as it's an odd shape and I've got no idea how to remedy it. Should I get new fitted wardrobes? Mmm, what a dilemma indeed. What do you reckon, Kate? Well, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you know, odd-shaped rooms can be irritating, they can be difficult to furnish, but they do give a place its character. You know, if you compare that with a new build, which is, you know, one of the questions I'm asked, and I'm sure you are a lot too, is how do I bring character to my new build? And a lot of new builds are a series of quite sort of square boxy rooms. Oh, I don't know. A new build could have an odd-shaped room. If you think about like loft bedrooms and... Long, narrow bedrooms. I think all sorts of properties can fall peril to the odd shape. Well, yes, but I think your Victorian or your period properties are really prone to it. And also, another way you get really odd-shaped rooms is if you live in a in a flat which has been converted from a period property because they carve those up in all sorts of ridiculous ways to try and get stairs in an odd-shaped bathroom. So although Carrie-Anne is talking specifically about her wardrobes, I think... Odd-shaped rooms is something that plagues all of us from, as you say, long, narrow, sloping ceilings, random kind of odd bits on landings. It's, you know, what do you do? Do you ignore it or do you highlight it? I think you've got to do one of two things. So one way of doing it, and it's probably my preferred method, is to try and disguise the oddness. So, for example, if you've got a loft bedroom with strange 
angles because it's up in the roof. Um, I always think it's a good idea to just paint it all out in one colour. You know, don't just do the white on the slopey ceiling and then the colour on the low little walls. All out in one colour, including all the woodwork. And if you do go for fitted storage, which is often the best solution because quite often off-the-shelf furniture just doesn't fit in odd-shaped rooms, paint that in with the wall colour too. And it just homogenises the whole space and you stop seeing all those weird angles. Another great decorator's trip, of course, is to use um, patterned wallpaper a little bit of toile de jouet in your attic bedroom looks very very sweet if you're going to channel that style I think you're absolutely right I get asked that a lot as well is it kind of oh where does the wall end and the ceiling start and then there's that funny little bit where there used to be a fireplace and now there's just a random triangle on the wall so I think you're absolutely right stop trying to work out the beginning and end of things pick a colour do the whole lot that will already help so in terms of of colour and yes you could wallpaper the whole ceiling or the whole walls we've said before with wallpapering a ceiling you do need to check that your pattern isn't supposed to go on a wall you know flowers that are growing upwards you need to make sure you've got a pattern that works in any direction uh, so that you can put it on a ceiling I mean there is as you say the idea of trying to disguise it sometimes you just can't and I think you've got to sort of go with it so if you've got a funny little triangle alcove then maybe you could just put shelves in it and use it for storing just a few books make a highlight of it if you really can't get rid of it altogether and sometimes I think you know take a step back from it and appreciate that maybe that is part of the character of the house you've got we bought a house where there were these kind of, it was a weird sort of angled wall and they'd put triangle shelves in the corner of it and they'd filled it with fruit. And I thought it looked so pretty when we went to look at the house that I sort of think we might have bought the house for the triangle walls. Um, of course, when we moved in, we realised that everything went mouldy in the wooden triangle shelves at the bottom and they were an absolute nightmare and you couldn't find anything in them. So we took them out because they weren't practical. But there was a little part of me that was really sad about that. So I do think you can, you know, go with an unusual feature. And again, if you can't get furniture in it, can you put furniture in front of it? Or can you maybe just hang a light in front of it and just sort of say, here's a weird thing, we're lighting it. Yeah, so what you're saying is it's about zoning, isn't it, sometimes, I think. And, and this goes for rooms that have odd little nooks and alcoves. You know, it is it is about zoning and, and I find quite often with odd shaped rooms is they lack focus. There's also this, there was something sort of like in 60s and 70s bungalows where they created these really long rooms and some of them had two fireplaces on one wall. And I get a lot of questions from people going, how do you do a layout in here? And I think that's sometimes where, you know, modular L-shaped sofas can help partition a large room because large rooms can be a real curse sometimes. They're not necessarily the luxury they lack intimacy. So sometimes it's using the rug, using some modular furniture. Again, your idea of using lighting to bring some focus and coherence to a space and then perhaps use colour like a stronger colour. I always think if you've got a long skinny room, if you paint the wall furthest away, yes. a strong colour, preferably a nice warm rich colour, it, it will you. actually yeah. visually come towards you. Yeah. And again, put recessive colours on the, on the other walls to push them out. So you can use a little bit of colour theory as well with your paint choices to help trick the eye to making a room feel slightly different. 
And again, think very carefully about how you're using the space and, and what you're doing with it. So I featured on the blog a couple of years ago, a house belonging to Matthew Gibbard and Faye Toogood, who we interviewed on the podcast again in the last series. And they'd got a very big bedroom and they basically just sort of cut out of a square of it to make a walk-in wardrobe and then put a chair down one side of the sort of corridor bit. So sometimes if you've got an odd shape, rather than trying to minimise it, maybe maximise it and build out around it or, or create something extra with it so that you're really incorporating it into the space. I think the key actually... Well, the key with all interior design for me, but particularly if you're fighting with an odd-shaped room, it's got to look like you meant it. So you've got to not be apologising for that funny little shape or that odd angle or that tiny little useless corner that you can't do anything with. Make it deliberate and ramp it up if you can't hide it. That would be my advice. Another problem with some bedrooms is the only place to put the headboard of a bed is up against a disused chimney breast. I see that happen quite a lot in Victorian houses, but our beds are wider than the chimney breast and that can create lots of difficult problems as well. So sometimes you just have to get rid of that chimney breast and make a wider wall and then you could maybe have some hidden storage behind it. But sometimes like don't be bullied by the architecture of your house and just think, oh, it is the way it is. Sometimes the bed needs to go where it needs to go and there is only one place and you have to make alterations to make it work, even if it means you're going to lose a couple of inches. But also I see that a lot with you know, people think they don't want to put the bed in front of the fireplace, which they're not going to use. So then they put it at the other end, which is very often the door end. So then you have that situation where you open the bedroom door and basically fall on the bed, which is fine if you've been to the pub. But on the basis you might not have been every day, it's not very useful. So absolutely that, you know, people people feel obliged to hang on to original features. And I get it. You know, they are lovely. They can add character, but you are living in that space. And if it is preventing you from furnishing the room the way you need to, to make it work for you or whoever's in that room, then maybe not necessarily rip it out if that upsets you, but block it off so that you can use the room the way you want, because a subsequent owner can always unblock it or you could unblock it later. So don't feel that you have to live your life around these, you know, bits of furniture or fixtures and fittings which might not suit you. If you have a style surgery question, all you need to do is record your question on your phone and email it to us at thegreatindoorspod at gmail.com. And don't forget our blogs where there will be more information, pictures and lots of useful links. I'm madaboutthehouse.com and she's sophierobinson.co.uk. And don't forget to give us a review on your podcast app if you have a spare moment, perhaps while sitting, admiring your newly designed shed slash playroom slash home office. But <laughs> that's Yeah, you. that is that's definitely me. But for now, a great big thank you to our new sponsors, Neptune. Thanks to our producer, Kate Taylor of Feast Collective. And thanks as ever to you, our lovely listeners. And we'll see you in the great indoors. I don't know if you're picking up any of this, but I'm in my mum's annex because, yet again, I've got no Wi-Fi. And uh, she's currently in the sink scrubbing her brand new potatoes. Her her allotment this year has just been the gift that's kept on giving. It's been so lovely. But I just wanted to share, if you can hear the tinkling of water She's a very quiet potato scrubber. I can hear nothing. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay.